Welcome to My Favorite Mystic, a podcast about the weird and wonderful world of mysticism. I'm your host, AJ Langley, and today I'm joined by James Roberts. He's currently finishing off his PhD in modern theology at Oxford University and struggling to learn Russian. James, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. It's really nice to be here. So today you're here to speak to us about Mother Maria Skoptsova, or Mother Maria of Paris. But before we talk about her, I want to hear a little bit more about you. So can you tell us a little bit about your research interests? Broadly, I'm quite interested in theological anthropology. At least that's what I did a little bit before starting the PhD. So for my master's, I looked at Hansers von Balthasar, and I looked at self-loss in his work. So really how he understands what it means to be a human and how we can lose ourself, but also gain our true self, I suppose, in his, his eyes. And that's kind of how I got into looking at Mother Maria, because there's so much self-loss in her work. But also I was really interested in ecumenism and I studied well for five years doing undergraduate and masters and I'd never really studied much modern orthodox thought. I think the only person I really looked at was John Zazoulas who's great but I wanted to find out a little bit more about orthodox thought so yeah that got me exploring modern orthodox things and then I came across Mother Maria who's fantastic and really interesting. I think. So yeah, that's how I, I ended up with her. But yeah, interests are kind of ecumenism and modern theology and a bit of theological anthropology too. When you say that Mother Maria was an Orthodox thinker, what church was she part of? Well, she was Russian, but she lived in exile in Paris. So hence the Mother Maria of Paris name. But she was a member of the Russian Orthodox Church and she carried on being a member of that in exile in Paris too. So now that you've mentioned exile, I am thoroughly intrigued. So let's do the biography. Can you tell us about her life? So she was born in 1891. So she's quite a reasonably modern figure. She's most famous for her social action. So I'll start there in her life, which is sort of more at the end of her life. So as I said, she was Russian, but she emigrated to Paris after the Russian Revolution, when a lot of Russians moved out of Russia in the kind of civil war that happens after the revolution. And when she was there, she became a nun and she dedicated her monastic life to social action. So one of her really big things was trying to maintain a balance between loving God and loving the neighbour. So she wanted to develop a monasticism that was really socially focused. And I think for kind of Russians and Orthodox at the time, that wasn't as common as perhaps, you know, like the Franciscans or something who have a very strong sort of social ethic. So in Paris, she was feeding the homeless and looking after the poor and visiting the sick in hospital and all these things. But she's very eccentric. She's kind of similar to the Holy Fools. This is kind of great sort of medieval tradition of these really strange holy figures who just act in really odd ways because she never gave up smoking. So she was a chain smoker, um, <laughs> but she was always wear her habit. And she used to go to one of the big markets in Paris to collect all the food that they're throwing away because then she would cook all the stuff in her kitchen to feed to the poor. So the market vendors started to recognise her because they would see all this smoke approaching. <laughs> and then this small little figure in a black habit would come up and she'd have all these bags. And I think maybe at one point she had a wheelbarrow that she used to go and so she'd fill it with vegetables and uh, then go back to her house and cook all these things for the poor. And she even, she lived in the cupboard under the stairs, a bit Harry Potter-esque. And at one point, she had a uh, a priest who was put into her house because it was it was kind of a convent. She had a few other sisters living with her, and 
some church officials were a bit worried because she was quite unorthodox in her practice. So they put this quite traditional sort of priest in this house to live with her, and he had the room above her. But Mother Marie was also a quite fierce intellect, and she really liked discussion. So she would have her philosopher friends come over in the evenings, and they would chat until the small hours. They would all smoke. And her room was underneath this priest's so all the smoke actually used to come up through the floorboards and would fill his room with their smoke so she's quite a tricky character for some orthodox people particularly if they're perhaps a bit more conservative in what they understand to be monasticism yeah i can totally see how if you have a traditional view of a monastic life with the isolation, quiet contemplation of God, that that really doesn't fit with chain-smoking philosophy parties. Exactly, yes. And she, she didn't give up drinking as well. So there was a metropolitan who was the kind of senior person in the Orthodox Church who was walking around Paris one day and he saw this nun who was sat outside in a square drinking beer in her habit. And he thought, who is this person? And then he got a bit closer and it was Mother Maria. So, as you say, she's a bit tricky for monasticism. But uh, yeah, just while we're still on the biography, another thing she was most famous for, and she was actually sainted relatively recently, I think about 10 years ago, for was her work in the resistance. So in the Second World War, she assisted the Jews in escaping from the Nazis. One of her most famous plans to do this was she befriended some refuse collectors who were going into the Velodrome d'Hiver, where a lot of people were being held by the Nazis, particularly Jewish people. And these refuse collectors she organised to go in with their empty bins and put children in the bins and then come out with them to rescue the children. So she was actually captured for doing this work and she was taken to a concentration camp where she was killed. So she was murdered in 1945. So she's remembered as a martyr and as a saint as well. But then in her biography, you have all these amazing things which are almost contradictory because you have this smoking nun. She was married twice and she had three children, one from a man who we don't know anything about. He was, I think, maybe a farmer in Russia. And she had a daughter. Her first daughter was with this man and she named her Guyana. So obviously kind of earth imagery. It's sort of her going back to the earth. So for a nun, this is quite an unusual timeline, really, and life. But it's very inspiring and, and quite interesting to, to work on because you have all these different things in her life. It does seem like she had an awful lot of life for just one woman. I could talk to you for hours just about her biography because she was also a published poet and an artist. She was mayor of a town for quite a long time in Russia, which is partly why she had to emigrate because she was kind of on the wrong side after the civil war. So she's involved in all these different things. But what I want to do in my work is really to look at her theology because she wrote a lot of essays and short articles about her theology, which really informs everything that she's doing. And I think it's really important to promote that side of her, especially as a woman in the 20th century, because so many of her colleagues and contemporaries were also theologians and they're really well known. So, well, well known in very small circles, <laughs> like Nikolai Budziaev, a philosopher, Sergei Bulgakov, who's a, also a theologian. She was friends with them, but she isn't really known for her intellect. I think sometimes her life does overshadow her intellect a little bit. So what I'm trying to do is show both, really, and the kind of her thought and how it inspired these amazing actions. So while her intellectual contributions haven't really been acknowledged yet, we do know that she was part of this community and involved in these discussions. Just looking at some archive work that 
I've had the opportunity to do, I've seen quite a lot of pictures and just visually, it's amazing to see in these crowds of Orthodox thinkers at these meetings and things, we have all these priests and all these very famous theologians. And then Mother Maria is so often there. And as I said earlier, she's really creative. So she used to knit a lot and do tapestry work. And she would be doing that in these talks. So you can kind of <laughs> scan these pictures and then you see this strange nun figure, like kind of bending over something. You're like, what is that? And it's Mother Maria sort of making some project. But she was always there. She was part of the conversation. So it's, I think it's important to highlight her thought as well. She's the modern academic who's doodling during a paper and then asks the <laughs> most insightful question of the whole Q&A. And you're just like, you were not paying attention. How did you do that? <laughs> yes, exactly. So on the topic of her theology and her religious devotion, it brings up the question with regards to this particular podcast, which is, was she a mystic? That's a really interesting question, because it's quite hard, I think, to redefine what a mystic is. One of her central ideas is what she calls the mysticism of human communion. So I mentioned earlier that in her theology, she really wants to maintain a balance between the human and the divine. And for her, the commandment to love, love God and love your neighbour is essential. And if you split one, uh, if you focus maybe just on God, or if you just focus on the humans, then that's not Christianity to her. And she's really emphatic about that. So the mysticism of human communion is how she tries to spiritually and mystically give reasons for loving the neighbour. So this is behind all of her social work, the trips to the markets and the feeding of the homeless, because she sees a mysticism in that, in a sense of encounter. So if you understand mysticism as a kind of connecting with the divine, then for her, you connect to the divine through human persons, because there's not a separation there. And the Russian word which is often used is godmanhood, so this is all one word, and it kind of reflects this synthesis between the divine and the human. And for her, when you encounter a person, you don't just encounter their flesh and their thoughts, but you also encounter the image of God, which is in them. So you can actually commune with God through the person in her thought. She defines this as a mysticism. So whether other people might think that is mysticism, I suppose, is, is up to other people to argue. But for her, this was the kind of mystical foundation of how we connect with humans and with the divine as well. I mean, she's reaching out for connection with the divine. She's just doing it in a slightly different way than other people do. And that is mystic enough for me. So let's talk about her writing now. What kind of things did she write about? So some of the earliest things she wrote were Lives of the Saints. So we have a few collections of her hagiography, and she seemed to work quite hard to trawl through history and find saints who were really socially engaged, in a sense of she's looking for people who have this synthesis that she keeps wanting to emphasise, who have a very strong interior spirituality, but then also people who go to the people who act as spiritual guides and who serve the poor or the needy or whoever. She redrafts them and retells these quite ancient stories of early Christian figures and saints. But then as well as that she has quite a lot of essays, so she published 
things in emigre journals and in presses. They're often quite small essays, originally published in Russian. There's a really nice collection, if anyone's interested to read some English things, by Orbis Press, which is the essential writings of Mother Maria Skapsova. And I think her method is kind of related to what she includes in her output, because I think she writes things quite reactionary. So she's so busy doing all these things in Paris and living under the stairs. And she used to write these articles in that little room, kind of scribbling away in her tiny and absolutely terrible handwriting, which is a nightmare. I can't even read it, <laughs> but it's, it's awful. But, you know, she's not a kind of systematic theologian. She's not sitting down to write treaties on the Trinity or the nature of God's inner life. She's writing about social action. She writes quite a lot about politics as well. And she writes about culture, creativity. She writes quite a lot about Mary. She's very interested in Mary too. So, yeah, we have a lot of these reasonably small essays. And part of my work is trying to synthesise those as well to get a sense of what her overall thought really is. And when it comes to poetry, she didn't stop writing poetry once she became a nun, which I think is also perhaps quite unusual for some Orthodox monastics. She wrote some nice poetry about Ruth and an early collection called Scythian Shards, which is quite a great name, quite a diverse kind of output. So from her biography, it sounds like Mother Maria had a lot of connections. Can you tell us a little bit about her community or communities in Paris? The two main communities, I think, would be her intellectual context and then also the monastic context. So if we start with the intellectual one, she was the spiritual daughter of Sergei Bulgakov, who was a 20th century theologian, an Orthodox priest, and is quite well known now and is quite well studied. She was also friends with philosopher Nikolai Berdyaev, and she also came from a particular school of Russian, well, the intelligentsia, really. So she grew up surrounded by poets and philosophers and thinkers in Russia. Her thought really remains very Russian. She's very interested in Dostoevsky and uh, a lot of philosophers from the 19th century in Russia. And she really continues that sort of world in Paris. So she's surrounded by these writers and these thinkers, and they would meet in her house and have these amazing discussions. And she continued that when she was a nun. So her monastic community is a little bit more tricky because you may have already got a sense that she was quite a fiery person and quite revolutionary in her ideas and also in her sentiments. And she didn't really get on very well with the other nuns who she was living with. There was one who she quite famously didn't get on with. And this nun was more sort of traditional in her understanding of monasticism, believing that you should dedicate your life to prayer, you should be in church a lot. But for Mother Maria, if you were in church and someone knocked on the door looking for food, you left church and you went to help them and to deal with them. But for some people that was a problem because they wanted to emphasise the particularity of what a monastic is as a praying presence. But for Mother Maria, she didn't want to separate the world from the church and she didn't want any walls dividing her monastery from the people. So she actually wrote a play about this, which is must be very embarrassing at the time because the characters are essentially her and this other nun. <laughs> <laughs> and she changes the name, but they just fall out in this play. And it just gets quite embarrassing because it's Mother Maria's views that 
come across really well and this other person is kind of comes over as this sort of conservative poo-pooer who doesn't really want to do anything new or revolutionary and um this other nun left and went to a kind of more traditional community but um she's always very contextual in how she responds to things so she wrote this essay called in defense of pharisaism so in defense of the pharisees and she looks at the pharisees as a kind of trope in theology versus prophets and how different they are and how pharisees are the people who preserve tradition and kind of keep this flame of faith kind of safe for everyone whereas the prophets are these more revolutionary figures who proclaim things and who are more revolutionary and perhaps a bit more destructive in the sense that they they want to tear things down and start them again and I think Mother Maria saw herself slightly more as a prophet in that sense but that was for her very contextual because she says every different age needs a different thing so some ages you need the Pharisees because you need that preserving presence to keep tradition to see it through a very tumultuous time but other times like in hers which she saw as very apocalyptic you need these prophetic voices to kind of speak of fire and big change and things like that so yeah i think she was a prophet in that sense so the pharisees are great and important until they start getting in the way of the prophets exactly yes <laughs> yeah and she says again she's all about balance so she says you need a balance of the two and different times call for different things I love that Mother Maria's revolutionary idea, the thing that's going to like tear things down, is feeding hungry people. That shouldn't be that revolutionary. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. And to her, it's really fundamental. Like, so many times she says it's really simple. She says, love God and love your neighbor. And, you know, how hard can that be? <laughs> but um... I mean, if the world tells us anything, that's really hard. Not necessarily as a concept, but in practice, impossible. Yeah. Definitely. And in light of that, I think she she does talk a lot about asceticism and she does often highlight how difficult it can be to engage with the neighbour. Because I think a lot of people are quite idealistic about that. You know, we can all say it's really good to feed the hungry and house the homeless. When you're actually doing it and you're encountering struggle in the world, it's very challenging and very difficult. And in some of her biographical reflections, you see how it's told that it has on Mother Maria that she lived in this little room under the stairs and people were constantly knocking on her door and she didn't have any time for herself and it really did take its toll on her. But part of her theology behind that is a theology of transformation. So transformation is really important in a lot of orthodox theology because in terms of asceticism, in terms of spiritual practices that you do in order to transform yourself and to become more like God. Part of it is also for her about engaging with the neighbour. So she sees that often as a very individual thing in practice. So she says, you know, often people will focus on their own spirituality and they're quite selfish in that sense, that they want to become more like God. And the only thing that matters is if they're saved, if they've reached a kind of salvation. But for her, there's a shared element in that as well that when you encounter someone you encounter this image of God in them but for her quite dramatically she says you encounter the devil in them as well so for her there's a kind of shared asceticism so this struggle to become more like God and to 
restrict the kind of passions which she believed would be negative or damaging to your life is a shared endeavor so she says when you encounter the other person you enter into them in a sense and you not only encounter god in them but you encounter this struggle so far you struggle with them and interestingly she compares that to motherhood so i mentioned earlier this concept of god manhood which is this combination of the divine and the human in a lot of russian thought but she talks about god motherhood inspired by by mary the mother of christ she sees this sharing of a spiritual struggle as like motherhood so she says when when you are a mother you birth a person and from that point you're kind of tied up with their life but in a sense you can't have total agency over them like you can't tell them exactly what to do they go their own way but you're always kind of the source of that so in a sense she says this is like being embodied in another person like a mother is kind of embodied in their child through flesh and blood and spirit as well no matter what you know happens later down the line there's there's always that connection and she saw that with mary and christ so mary continued to suffer and be kind of bound up with Christ's fate, even though she didn't really have a say in it, ultimately. In some ways, for Mother Maria, that's quite revolutionary, because, you know, she's she's actually talking about a very feminine sort of aspect. So there might be a kind of feminist reading, but also there's a kind of criticism of that in a way, because she's sort of saying that the female side is passive, in a sense, because she's talking about, well, the son going off and doing things, and then the mother is kind of remaining and is that sort of passive figure. Well, maybe as a mother herself, she was just thinking about her own experiences with her kids being off in the world doing stuff that she had no control over or say in. I think that is really true, actually, because one thing I quite like to think about is how her biography really relates to her thoughts. And one of the main reasons, according to one of her biographers, that she became a nun was actually because one of her children died quite young. And after that, Mother Maria decided that she wanted to become a mother to all people. And for her, that was why she became a nun, because she thought being a nun would be the best way to show that kind of motherly care and embodiment in another with the people through her social action. So yeah, there's actually a, a really close connection there and quite beautiful as well. I think that it's inspiring that she chose to, you know, you say that this taking care of the neighbor and loving your neighbor is it took a great toll on her and i think it's just inspiring that she chose to inflict that same pain on everyone who lived with her with her <laughs> chain smoking <laughs> philosophy parties <laughs> she kind of sounds like that sort of really annoying university housemate who like you know stays up all night brings their friends around without asking and smoking <laughs> drinking constantly using exactly. the kitchen to cook big meals for other people <laughs> yeah her wheelbarrow of rotten veg just sat in the porch <laughs> i bet she didn't do her dishes either nightmare <laughs> yes no but it is really lovely that she turned a personal tragedy into a life of helping others yeah so i have a little piece of writing which kind of relates to what we're talking about the difficulty of doing these things in practice. So we were talking about how she has these amazing ideals about loving God and loving the neighbour, but often people are really annoying and that's quite hard to do, you know, 24-7. This is a passage where she reflects on that, but really concludes why it's still important. 
so I'll start reading out. This is from an essay which is called The Mysticism of Human Communion. She says, we get from the world and from humanity what we count on getting from them. We may get a disturbing neighbour in the same apartment, or an all too merry drinking companion, or a capricious and slow-witted student, or obnoxious ladies, or seedy old codgers, and so on. And relations with them will only weary us physically, annoy us inwardly, and deaden us spiritually. But through Christ's image in humanity, we may partake of the body of Christ. And a bit later she continues, everything in the world can be Christian, but only if it is pervaded by the authentic awe of communion with God, which is also possible on the path of authentic communion with humanity. But outside this chief thing, there is no authentic Christianity. So you see there how emphatic she is about loving God and loving the neighbour, and this is her prophetic voice for her age. This is what she wants to say to the Orthodox Church at the time. But she's also quite realistic that a lot of those people are slow-witted and obnoxious. I mean, that's a really lovely sentiment, but the gall to say that other people might have terrible roommates when she wrote a whole play bad-mouthing one of hers. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, yeah, she's not perfect herself. <laughs> That's the funny thing, because she was sated. So, you know, how we think about the saints as well. Is so often I think we think of them as these untouchable, perfect people who maybe didn't really live ordinary lives, but she was sated and she liked to drink and a smoke. So maybe there's hope for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> what, what an inspiring message for 2021. Yeah, I think so. I think she's needed now as, as much as ever. Well, while I genuinely feel like I could talk to you about this woman all day, we are coming to the end of our time. So I will ask you the main question of the podcast, which is, why is Mother Maria of Paris your favourite mystic? For me, she's my favourite because she's so fun, in a sense. Her biography is so endlessly interesting. And she had such a rich life, but also an inspiring life as well. What I think is really interesting is that she's not a stuffy old man, which is like so many of the theologians that we work on, you know, in theology departments. She's a Russian woman who's doing active work and she's very revolutionary and I think she's one of those people who you can't help but be inspired and moved by when you read her. Even if you don't agree with everything that she says, even if you're if you're not a Christian, I think she writes with such fire and with such passion, and she backs that up with practice as well, that she's actually doing these things, that you can't help really but be moved by her. And that's why I find studying her so fascinating, and that's why She's my favourite mystic. Well, I sincerely doubt that anyone will have been able to hear you speak about Mother Maria and not be instantly fascinated by this incredible woman. Thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing a little bit of her life. If people want to find more of your work, where can they find you? Sure, thank you. Uh, you say you, I have a Twitter page where you can find me. I'm at 
Jamer Roberts, which is James Roberts, but without an S and with an R, so J-A-M-E-R Roberts. And I tweet quite often about Mother Maria and tweet about some of her photos and archive things. So yeah, if you want to find out more, please follow me there. That is great. And I will put links to your Twitter in the show notes. Thank you so much again for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It was really a great pleasure to, to come on your podcast. And I look forward to hearing more of your work as well. And thank you all for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at MyFaveMystic and join me next time when I speak to Laurie Silvers about the Sufi mystic Shawana.